Let's return to our origins, like a planet orbiting its star, a star around the center of a galaxy, like a circle or an O, and come back to Oumuamua, our interstellar object, which we first spotted in October 2017, or, as Harvard astronomer Avi Loeb described it, our rather strange guest. If you have a guest for dinner and that guest looks very unusual, you start wondering, is it really the same as my family members? It looks so strange. It was our first interstellar object, at least the first we recognized, in and out of range before we really knew what we'd found, and we'll never get a better look at it. That's quite unfortunate because science is based on evidence. And the more evidence we have, the better conclusions we can draw about the nature of this object. Given what little information we were able to gather about how it moved, its trajectory and speed, its shape, we knew it was different. But a lot of questions remained. What was it? Comet? Alien light sail? Something completely unknown or unexpected? We won't ever know. But in August 2019, in the middle of reporting this project, an amateur astronomer in Crimea discovered a second interstellar object, passing through our solar system, getting about as close as Oumuamua did. Which suggests that these kinds of objects are more common than we've thought. And now that we're developing the tools to see them, we might just find them everywhere. Perhaps life will be the same. As we finally develop tools powerful enough to peer into the great distances of our solar system, our galaxy, and ultimately the universe beyond, maybe we'll discover that life abounds, that extraterrestrials are everywhere, but we also have to consider the possibility that we are on our own. I'm Laura Krantz, and this is Wild Thing, Space Invaders, a series about the search for extraterrestrial life, where we're looking, what we're looking for, and why we hope we're not alone. Where is everybody? Enrico Fermi, an Italian-American physicist, asked that question in 1950 while enjoying lunch with his colleagues. Given the size of the galaxy and the number of stars and planets, the probability of other life somewhere seems high. So, he wondered, wouldn't we have run into somebody by now? There are plenty of reasonable explanations for why that might not be the case. Time, distance, the sheer amount of area there is to cover. I love showing a slide from the Hubble Space Telescope of a particularly dark area of the night sky that is no larger than one's fingertip extended by a length of one's arm. Bill Brown again. He's the professor from Columbia Theological Seminary that we met in the last episode. And it shows all of these illuminaries filling this slide. And I ask, how many stars can you count? And folks say, oh my gosh, there are just too many of them. And then I point out that in this photograph, there are only two, maybe three stars, and the rest are galaxies. And with that, there's a sense of awe and sometimes kind of a sense of terror that overwhelms the audience in knowing that there are now, I think the latest count, there are about a trillion galaxies in the universe, and each one has millions upon millions of stars, and each star is most likely to be a planetary system. I think those two emotions kind of define this search. Awe, that the universe is filled with so much that there are incredible things yet to learn and discover. It's boundless and exciting and inspiring. But also terror, 
that the universe is so big, that we are so small, and that we still have so much we don't know, including whether there's actually anything or anyone else out there. I spoke with a lot of people about extraterrestrials while working on this podcast, from the astrobiologists at SETI to the ufologists at Roswell, to people I just happened to talk to about what I was working on, like my Uber driver and the woman who cuts my hair. And I heard the same thing over and over. The universe is a big place. There's got to be more than just us. I don't think the existence of an extraterrestrial civilization is speculative. I think there has to have been, or is, or will be at some point. I do think there's something else out there. I hope there is. I think that'd be cool. Common sense dictates to me that we're such a small speck of what we have out there that I believe there's something else out there. In fact, so many people are thinking about this topic that one of the oldest polling firms in the country, Gallup, wanted to find out more about exactly what Americans actually believe. So to really try to nail down whether people think aliens have visited Earth. So there we found out 33% do believe that we've had alien visitors. That's Lydia Saad, the director of social research for Gallup. So Gallup's goal is to measure what the American public is thinking, feeling, doing on any uh, number of subjects that are important to U.S. society. And we've been doing this since about 1935. One of those subjects? UFOs. The first time they asked about it was in 1973. First question, have you heard or read about unidentified flying objects slash UFOs? Second Have you yourself ever seen anything you thought was a UFO? And then, in your opinion, are UFOs something real or just people's imaginations? So those three questions were asked in that order in 1973 and then repeated in 78, 87, 90, 96. And then again in 2019. Now, you might see a problem with these series of questions. They don't actually define what a UFO is. Are they using the literal definition, that it's just an unidentified flying object? Or are they equating UFOs with aliens? Yes, exactly. And I actually had gone back and looked at the original articles written about this question in 73 and 78. And the articles were written as if a UFO was alien spacecraft. Like it assumed that that meant little green men and disc-like objects flying through the sky without any equivocation on that. And maybe that's how the term was used back then, I don't know. But certainly today, I didn't feel comfortable equating this question with believing that UFOs are that. To fix that problem, they added a new question to the most recent poll. Which comes closer to your view? Some UFOs have been alien spacecraft visiting Earth from other planets or galaxies, or all UFO sightings can be explained by human activity on Earth or natural phenomena. The number of people who think some UFOs are extraterrestrial visitors? 33%. That's roughly one out of every three Americans, more than the number of Catholics in the U.S. Which honestly surprised me. It means that out of everyone I know, a good chunk of them probably think this is true. But almost none of them have ever led on to that belief. I asked what some of the demographic information was, like education or age or religion. Lydia mentions that people with less income and less education leaned more toward the idea that aliens had come to Earth, but that there really weren't any other huge divisions. Um, There's not a big difference by gender or race or even age on those things. Party ID gets washed over because there aren't big age or gender or racial differences. There is not a huge religious divide. 
Christians, people self-identified Protestants and Catholics are almost as likely as those with no religion, atheists and agnostics, to say they think UFOs are real or they've personally seen one. Lydia points out that this one-third is just the people who think aliens have been to Earth. Another question asked if there are people somewhat like ourselves living on other planets in the universe. Just shy of 50% of Americans say yes. That's not just life on other planets, that's intelligent life. And then three quarters saying there's some form of life of any kind. The wide belief that we're not completely alone in the universe. Honestly, more than any time before, this is the most exciting moment to be on the hunt for extraterrestrial life. Whether it's Martian microbes or technologically advanced aliens, as Seth Shostak, chief astronomer at the SETI Institute, points out, we've taken some giant steps that might be bringing us closer. One of the biggest stories in astronomy, certainly, for the last two decades has been the discovery of planets around stars. And, you know, three decades ago, we didn't know whether planets really existed around other stars or not. I mean, most people thought they probably did, but, you know, thinking that is an opinion, whereas finding them is a fact. The other big thing that changes is the technology, the receivers that are used, the equipment. And thanks to, you know, computer technology fundamentally, that improves enormously every five or ten years. It's much, much better than it was, so you can do a much better experiment. I know. He's talking about decades here. Makes this whole process seem so incremental. We're used to getting results quickly. Got a question? Throw it into Google and get your answer within seconds. Science takes longer much longer. It builds upon itself, constantly testing and retesting various theories. For those of us used to immediate gratification, it can feel painstakingly slow. But if you stop to think about it, we know so much more than we did even 20 years ago. There is forward motion. There is progress in this field. Progress can also be measured in terms of a cultural shift. SETI scientists like Jill Tarter, who for decades had been considered a little bit fringe by the scientific establishment, now feel they're being taken seriously. Yeah, certainly exoplanets and extremophiles have been game changers, right? It's not ridiculous anymore to talk about life beyond Earth. And we're developing technologies to go explore, to look for it. So that has really been a very significant shift over my career. We've, I hope, done the work well enough to legitimize this field of exploration. And it's going to be a wild ride in the future. A wider acceptance of these ideas, the launch of new powerful telescopes, ambitious projects like the Breakthrough Initiatives. Not only could this help us in the search for ET, it helps us understand the universe we live in. Wild Thing fans, I have a serious message for you. If you're not already talking to your kids about aliens, it's probably time to start. Just this year alone, the James Webb Space Telescope found distant planets that might harbor life. Archaeologists claimed to have found mummified aliens. And extraterrestrials even got a shout-out during congressional hearings. No doubt your kids are asking lots of questions, and it could be you're not sure how to answer them. Let me recommend my new book, Is There Anybody Out There?, which arrives on Earth on October 3rd. This middle-grade book, based on Season 2 of Wild Thing, explores the question of whether we're alone in the universe using science, humor, and fun illustrations. And it'll leave everyone better prepared for the possibility of alien life. 
Help kids learn how to tell the difference between science fact and science fiction. Look for Is There Anybody Out There in all bookstores and online. Or for more information, go to wildthingpodcast.com. What's interesting about this search is that, in many ways, it seems like we're looking for an echo of ourselves out there because it provides the answers to our own origins. Some people really, really want to go find life. Uh, For me, it's been more of a, a question about where we came from, less about what else is out there. It's, you know, who knows if we'll ever find life. We have one version of it, and so I just want to study that version. We want to know how life goes from the beginnings to, you know, where we're at right now, what life is. How did we get from there to here? And if there are others out there, did they follow the same path? Is understanding our progress the key to answering Fermi's question? Early on in the series, we heard about how when you're looking for your lost keys, you'll probably start by looking under a lamppost. You may not have dropped them there, but that's the place where there's light. In the same way, we're looking for alien life in the only place we have light. We only have one place to look at life here on Earth, so that's our starting point. We think that life out there might also be carbon-based, like us. I don't think we're talking whole different. I think we're still talking carbon-based and water-based. That it has the same basic requirements that we do. You have to have water. And then uh, you need energy, you need nutrients. And, and you need a shelter. That certain types of planets with water and other essential elements will be good for life in the way that Earth works for us. With biology, at least you know what to do, right? It, there, there's some things you can say, no, this world's good for life, that world's not good for life, so we'll look for, the, for life on the world that's good. As things get more complex, we hypothesize that their technology might be similar to ours. Radio to transmit information and do business and entertain, it's everywhere on Earth. It's just a very good way to do things and very beneficial. So that's why I think it's likely that the train of development that happened on Earth will be repeated elsewhere. That their cultural evolution could mirror our own. We're a really young technology in an old galaxy. And to get to be old, perhaps you have to outgrow your aggressive tendencies. So this is more along the line of cultural evolution, Steven Pinker's kinder and gentler selves. So perhaps an old, stable technology isn't something we have to fear because they've evolved beyond the worst of humans and the stuff that we don't seem to be able to get right and control. If they're going to stick around for a long time, if we're going to stick around for a long time, we've got to outgrow that. And we hope that they will be a step ahead of us, a better version of ourselves, capable of teaching us what we need to know. And um, the future will be very different than the past. And that's why we should not have a prejudice, because other civilizations may have reached our future already. And when we look at them, we would see what we could become. So that includes advanced technologies. So we can, le- we can learn from them. The way the argument goes is, is that if we encounter some civilization, it's likely that they're far older than we are, just statistically, based on the age of the universe. And that means that somehow they've figured out how to live for a very long time. 
And so perhaps that means that they've figured out how to get along with one another, get along with their environment, uh, and perhaps get along with, with the universe. It's not surprising that our views of the alien are actually very Earth-centered. But in thinking about our interaction with extraterrestrials, it's more than just the physical and the biological. There's also a psychological element to it, about what the discovery of alien life would mean. On one hand, the unknown is always a little frightening. And what if they take us over, strip mine the planet, steal our resources? There are some people who worry, as in Stephen Hawking, that if we make a loud noise, they will come and land on our doorstep and have us for breakfast, perhaps. More likely, it would be absolutely horrible, just more in a inadvertent whether you want to go with uh, aliens inadvertently bring some disease to the planet that we can't battle. Or perhaps the thing to fear isn't them, but ourselves. I think if they would come here that there's going to be those idiots out there that's going to try to shoot them down. That's what I think. And if that would happen, our world would be gone, you know. Panic's a pretty strong word. But if they came out and said, guess what, folks, we've discovered that aliens are here, you know, that would probably create panic. On the other hand, of course, it could be completely the opposite. The discovery of extraterrestrials, especially technologically advanced ones, could be the thing that bands us together as Earthlings and makes us think about our collective future. What is the successful endpoint of the evolution of intelligent civilizations? Look at the future. And if this future is a pretty one, uh, it gives us guidance as to what to work towards. It shows that we, too, can have a long future, that it's possible for our civilization to survive. It doesn't tell us how to get there, but it tells us that it's possible. Someone else made it through the kinds of cultural and technological bottlenecks we find ourselves in today. And that's the reason, one of the reasons I like talking to people so much about this field because it stretches their minds. It helps them to see themselves in a bigger context, a more cosmic perspective. And ultimately, I think it helps to trivialize the differences among humans. When we compare ourselves to something out there with an independent evolution, we have to understand that we're all humans. We're all earthlings. We're all the same relative to something else. I don't think we're going to get strip-mined. For a more advanced civilization, that would be a tremendous waste of resources, and I don't imagine they'd get anything here that they couldn't get elsewhere. But I also don't think that they're going to be our saviors. I think we're on our own for that. Because if we're waiting for aliens to turn up and show us how to do it, we could be waiting a very long time. And the solar system, just the solar system is huge. Yeah. So when you start thinking about the possibility or feasibility of even going farther away, and, and then not only that, it's like, it's as challenging for us as it might be to any other potential live being that might be out there. Yeah. So at the end of the day, distances are one of the key challenges for life to find a counterpart. We might find microbial life out there. I'm giving that good odds. Given all we've heard, I think it's less likely we'll come across some sort of advanced civilization or another planet like ours, filled with other species we can interact with, at least in this lifetime. And honestly, 
I'm not sure we're ever going to have the answer to Fermi's question. Not now, not in another millennia. So why is this important? Why do we still feel compelled to search? I think it is important to know. It's important to know, I mean, in the same way that it's important to know, indeed, where we came from, right? The whole study of uh, paleontology and all this stuff where you, you try and discern how did homo sapiens arise? Why are people interested in that? You know, you're still going to go to work tomorrow. you still got to pick up your, your coffee in the morning and get on the subway or whatever. And so who cares where we came from? I'll admit, I've kind of wondered that myself. The discovery of life on other planets seems far away, even if it happens at all. It certainly doesn't affect my day-to-day existence, right? Think of it this way. Here on this planet, something like Bigfoot or the Tasmanian tiger feels like a creature you could stumble upon at any moment. And with enough searching, you can eventually rule them out, too. At some point, we have explored enough, seen enough, that the possibility of those creatures can be confirmed or eliminated. But extraterrestrial life? In many ways, it seems more likely to exist than Bigfoot, but less likely to be discovered in our lifetime. And unlike things confined to this planet, we won't ever know for sure. Aliens could be out there, but they could also be so far away, both in time and distance, that they might as well not exist at all. I still leave that as a question mark. Um, Because I heard from scientists who some of whom were very confident that life would be discovered, even if it's just microbial life, within the solar system within the next 15 years. And there were others who felt that um, life is so rare from a biochemical statistical standpoint that it would be very surprising to find life anywhere else except on this planet. Uh, And so I leave it as a big question mark that actually I find quite enlivening. I am... I am enthralled with the possibility of life beyond this planet, but I'm not going to pin my hopes with some assurance that there is life out there. Which brings up another really important question. What if in all this searching, we turn up nothing? What does it mean if we are actually alone? If we are, in fact, so rare that our existence is the exception and not the rule? That's okay, too, because I also know that we're not alone on this planet, to be sure. In fact, uh, astrobiology has led me to microbiology with the realization that every single human body is never alone. We are a microbiome. We are a community of cells, most of which don't belong to us, but are on us and within us. And so we are walking communities. Uh, We are not alone. I am never alone. Well, that's comforting. Even if you can't converse with a microbe, you can take comfort in knowing that life is going on all around you, which is something we should remember as we continue this search into the great beyond. We're not alone. We're surrounded by other living things, strange and wondrous, and we still have plenty to learn right here on this planet. You know, the old Far Side cartoon where the scientists... There's a tank of dolphins, and there's these scientists, and they have a blackboard, and they're writing on the blackboard. And one of them says, there's that Hable Espanol vocalization again. You know, and the dolphins are trying everything. There's Sprechen Sie Deutsch, and Parlez-vous Francais, and, you know, and that's about it. It's like we have all these animals, and we're staring at the stars and going, I wonder if we're alone. It's like, you who Hable Espanol, anything. They're trying to communicate. I like the idea that there's something else out there, 
But I think we also have to be at peace with the idea that this could be all there is and appreciate the fragility and splendor right under our noses. And sometimes I think it's okay to look up at the stars and admire them for how pretty they are, rather than wondering who's out there. And then, of course, there's the argument that this isn't the best use of our time, our resources, that there are better things we could be doing with all that technology and brain power and gobs of money. I mean, you could say the same thing to all these guys composing music. Hey, you guys, we've got real problems here. You know, we, we've got climate change. we got, you know, vaping. I don't know, whatever. The, the, the problem du jour. And you can say, so stop composing the music. And by the way, all you guys, you know, smearing paint on canvas. What a waste. You know, we, we've got people who need real help. Our schools are a mess. I mean, stop doing that. We're going to do something else. Any society that says, no, we're only going to do the things that are immediately needed for the survival of the species, and that's all we're going to do. Which would be a truly sad and joyless way to go through life. Yes, we have problems at home, and we should certainly be addressing them, but not to the point where we throw all creativity and exploration out the window. That's a static society that goes nowhere. It has no culture, really, because of no curiosity, there's no technical progress, there's no, you know, development of new ideas, there's no art. I mean, we're going to talk to the, uh, the guys who study dinosaurs and say, this is such a waste. They've been, they've been dead for 66 million years, and all you're doing is stacking their bones up in my museum here that I'm paying for. So uh, just cut it out and go find the cure for malaria. Of course we should find the cure for malaria. But, you know, all this stuff, this exploratory science, I think it's the essence of being a homo sapiens. We search because we have to. It's part of who we are as a species, and I don't think we could stop if we wanted to. Humans are, are curious creatures, and we want to question our own position and, and to some extent kind of understand what else exists out there. And so I think it's important for humanity to, to have that curiosity and have that understanding of where we are in the universe. It is in our nature to be discoverers and explorers. At the at the soul of who we are is this joyful adventuring spirit. And sometimes we mess it up. We are not as careful as we should be. We are never as kind as we should be. But we still have that little spark that says, hey, hey, let's go find out what's out there. Let's go see. There's a T.S. Eliot quote that someone shared with me along the way. We shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Like a planet orbiting its star, and a star around its galaxy. In peering into our telescopes at the star-studded blackness of space, we come to have a better understanding of ourselves and our planet. And in all this, I realize that the search for extraterrestrial life might be the most human thing we can do. If you enjoyed Wild Thing, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to good stories. And definitely tell your friends, because all of this really helps get the word out about the show and makes another season possible. You can find at Wild Thing Pod on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and check out the website, wildthingpodcast.com. That's wildthingpodcast, all one word, for more information about the show. And, of course, for some cool stickers. This podcast is a production of Foxtopus, Inc. Our executive producer is Scott Carney. Editing is by Alicia Lipinski. And the score and sound mixing come from Louis Weeks. I'm your host and creator, Laura Krantz. And in addition to the names you heard above, I want to extend special thanks to people who generously shared their time, 
knowledge, and resources, including Sarah Scholes, who indulged lots of questions and lent extensive fact-checking help, Dave Brain, for patiently explaining physics basics repeatedly and answering more than a few dumb questions, Lisa Yazik and Frank Rosenzweig at Georgia Tech, who spent considerable time talking to me and connecting me to others in their community, the University of Colorado Boulder's Nest Studio for the Arts for their financial support, Frank and Amal Drake, who invited me into their home and shared wonderful stories and a delicious lunch. And finally, absolutely every voice you heard in this podcast, and the many more that you didn't, but whose contributions helped make this story better.